Hello and welcome to the RBC Ross Trevor Campus Sermon Podcast. Our mission here is loving God, loving people and seeing lives change. At RBC, our heart is to build a Jesus-centered community, to see lives changed in multiple languages and locations. We hope you enjoyed this message from one of our weekend services. To find out more about us, please visit our website, rbc.org.au. For your comfort, despite the realities that would be contradictory to that. And I ask, Lord, that as we come today to learn from your word and to, to seek another aspect of peace and to seek understanding and to learn from your teachings, I pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts and open our ears, that you would soften us to be able to receive the word that you have for us, regardless of how confronting or challenging it might be. I ask, Lord, that you would bless this time, that you would anoint the words that are spoken, and that you would be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as a church, we've spent the past four weeks in this series of learning what peace is and actually learning really what shalom is. Does anyone remember Pastor Mike showing us that video the first week of what that idea and what that word of shalom means? Our English language doesn't translate shalom very well, and so the word we use is peace. The word the Bible uses is shalom, and it's more than just peace in the absence of war. Shalom encompasses wholeness and well-being and completeness and harmony. And so our first week in this series, we were taught about Jesus being our peace, Christ Jesus himself our peace. The following week, Ian brought us a moving message about how the peace of Jesus is not like the peace that the world gives. It's a peace that only Jesus can give, a peace that defies the world's peace. A peace that is greater than the world's peace. And the following week, Mike Harris brought us another sermon about the confidence that we can have in God's care of us. That we can find peace in the confidence of God's care during times of suffering and during times of hardship. And last week, Dan brought us a sermon based in the Psalms, talking to us about being still in the presence of God and navigating this time of disorientation and reorientation and about God showing us the new way forward, which might not necessarily look like how it once was, but it's better because God is always moving, always working for the good of his people. Amen? Amen. And so I think as a really helpful way to, learn, to keep going into this sermon today, That idea that Dan brought us last week of disorientation and reorientation is going to be really helpful because I think for a lot of us here today, feeling disorientated may ring quite true to us. It's very awkward feeling disorientated. It's very tense feeling disorientated. I've looked after a lot of patients in my time who are disorientated and it's very upsetting seeing people who are disorientated. But today we look at this practice of shalom in a way that helps us in our disorientation when it may come to relationships with one another and how we live out this peace in a way that we as the people of God seek to live in shalom with those around us. And I'm going to be honest, when I saw, got the email through and we see all of our sermons and who's going to be preaching what, I looked across and I saw peace with others in our relationships, and then I saw Michaela Millard attached to it. 
and I laughed. <laughs> I, I laughed because I knew it would be hard to preach, number one. It, it would be hard because God would confront me about the areas where I may not be living in Shalom and the relationships where I find it challenging to live in Shalom. And I also laughed because I truly think that in the 25 years that I've been alive, I don't think there has ever been so much tension in the air, ever, in my living memory. And granted, there are people who are much wiser than me and who have lived longer lives than me, but in my 25 years, I have never seen this world in so much tension. Never. I think sometimes what's been overlooked in some ways and downplayed in other ways is the fact that we have a COVID pandemic going on, but we also have a mental health pandemic going on. A very obvious mental health pandemic going on. I've just finished up five years working at the Royal Adelaide Hospital, and I tell you what, if I wasn't looking after a patient with COVID, I was looking after someone in a mental health crisis. And sometimes I wouldn't even be looking after COVID patients, I would just be looking after people in significant, life-altering mental health crises. I've been relieving to ED. I normally work in intensive care, but there were shifts where I would be relieving in the emergency department and we would be overrun, overrun with significantly ill people struggling with their mental health. And it was awful. And that's what we don't hear about. That's what we don't hear about. But that's the reality of what this season has brought for so many people. And if there are some people in this room who may not necessarily have a diagnosis of a medical generalised anxiety disorder or a mood disturbance. This tension has brought anxiousness and anxious thoughts to the forefront of people's minds, even if you may not necessarily have a diagnosis. And that makes people very uncomfortable because it's not nice being anxious. It's not nice feeling scared. And that makes people tense, because people don't like to feel that way, because there is a stigma around mental health. People are teeming with their emotions. It's almost like where our emotions are sitting right about here, and at any minute, anything could push us over the edge. Anything. And that makes it really hard to be in relationship with people, doesn't it? It makes it really, really hard to be in relationship with people. As I was looking through all the... I suppose, ways that these past few years have affected people's relationships. I stumbled upon an article that the BBC had published in December of 2020. And they were looking at the numbers from a, one of the top law firms in England, in London. And from the time period of July to October 2020, there was a 122% increase in inquiries about divorce. A 122% increase in inquiries about divorce from the previous year. That is shocking. As someone who is a child of divorce, that is shocking. And this article cited money problems, employment problems, exacerbations of underlying mental health diseases that all compounded, 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 and all of a sudden, we've got this incredible rise of people seeking out advice around divorces. And that's just marriages. What about friendships? It's very hard to maintain friendships in the pandemic, isn't it? 
At any moment, you could be told that you're a close contact, you have to isolate. You want to go and stay outdoors because there's, you know, healthier and it's advised by the government to attend outdoor settings, but there's not enough space sometimes. It's very hard to maintain your friendships when you constantly are teeming with emotions, absolutely teeming with emotions, but not just you, the person you're meeting up with, your friend you're meeting up with. It's very hard to maintain relationships where you can't sit face to face with someone and you can't pour out your heart to your trusted friend. Instead, you've got to do it through a screen. You know, the physical touch of another human being cannot be understated. In a moment of absolute desperation and in brokenness, the physical touch of a human being cannot be understated, can it? The amount of hands that I've held in my career as a nurse, if I couldn't hold my patient's hand, oh, it breaks my heart. And so we've got family relations, friendships where there's so much tension. We've been forced to navigate relationships in a totally different way. And that's really confronting and it forces a lot of people to look at the situation that's going on and to think, how are we supposed to do this? And it's into this reality that's fraught with so many troubles that the words of Paul to the Romans are just as weighty and just as necessary as it is then to what it is now, to see peace worked out in our lives. And so our scripture and our teaching comes today from Romans chapter 12. And it's going to be on the screen behind me and I'll read it out. From verse 17, it says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it's written, it is mine to avenge, and I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, give him something to eat. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Preach a sermon on that, Mickey. Okay. Paul's letter to the Romans comes at a very crucial time. And this letter, if we just contextualise this for a minute, this letter comes quite late in Paul's career. And so this church has more than likely been around for longer than Paul's career has actually been around in ministry. And this church is actually quite evenly, in some ways, made up of both Jew and Gentile. But at some point we know in Roman history, the Emperor Claudius, as part of his religious regime and his reformation in a way expels the Jews from Rome and sends them back out. We know at some point later, approximately five years later, the Jews are allowed back into Rome and rightly so they find that this church that they once attended in Rome doesn't look very Jewish anymore. It looks very Roman, it looks very Gentile and that causes a lot of tension because the clashing of cultural backgrounds is real. There's disagreements over the Sabbath. There's disagreements over what foods to eat. There's disagreements over whether or not the young boy should be circumcised. And so Paul writes this letter to address a few things within the church. Obviously, number one, he writes this letter to encourage unity within the church, to encourage the people to practice peace with one another. 
And Paul also writes this because he can see the potential of the Roman church as being a key player in seeing the message of the good news of Jesus spread even further west than just Rome, even further west through Europe up until Spain. And so we find that Paul's letter to the Romans is actually the fullest explanation that Paul gives of the gospel of Jesus and of the good news of his life, his death and resurrection, and what that reality should actually mean in our lives and how that should translate in our lives. And so Paul teaches that the righteousness that we know is revealed through God and by God. It's actually through the risen King Jesus, through his life, death and resurrection, that he freed the nations from sin. All nations, not just the Jewish nation, all nations from sin. And through that justification, we are then transformed to become a new humanity. And it's through the work of the Holy Spirit that the family of Jesus now no longer just looks Jewish. It's multi-ethnic. It's diverse. We have a diverse family of believers now. But in that, unity is still the, lead, the last message that Paul leaves in his letter to the Romans. And the last few chapters of the book of Romans talks heavily about how to love one another, how to live in unity with one another, and that we must practice serving each other, forgiving one another, and acting in humility. And so these clashing of these cultural backgrounds between the Gentiles and the Jews, clashing of ideas around religious practices, is not just an argument that's reserved for the Roman church. We have wars. We have geopolitical tensions. We have oppression, class separation, sexism, racism, unequal access to healthcare, climate change, social media use, gun control. These are all problems in our life right now. And I haven't really even begun to talk about the spicy cough. COVID that we've been facing and the divisiveness that that can cause in people's ideas around vaccination status and how they should live their lives. It's a very divided and tense time, isn't it? And if, I've already said it once, but if we take an actual look at what's going on with all of these troubles in the world, if we strip it down, right down to the very basics, it's division, isn't it? We're in a divided and a fractured world. And not in my living memory, as I already said, can I recall a time where there's so much tension in the air. And if I'm being honest, I would even go on to say that there are times where I'm even nervous to express my thoughts on something that could be contentious, that I know someone might have a differing opinion from because I'm worried of what their reaction might be because people are teeming with emotions. Feels like we're walking on eggshells in some ways, doesn't it? But it's easy sometimes for us to believe that these sort of divisions are reserved for outside of the church. It's kind of easier to think that way, isn't it? It's not nice to think that divisions and fractured communities can actually be inside the church, is it? That's a little bit more uncomfortable to think about. If we really ask ourselves the question, can we honestly say that the church has set itself apart from these fractured communities and divisiveness? Because I want to be very sensitive in this, because there will be some people in this room today who have trauma and pain from fractured church environments and poor leadership. People in this room may have had experience in communities that said, we will love you, 
You are welcome, but you have to do this and look this way and speak this way and live a life this way. Acceptedness comes with conditions in some places. Places and churches that claim to love, but instead shunned and shamed. Now, I really don't say these things to slam the church. Hear me well, I love the church and I love its purpose for the kingdom. But we are doing ourselves an injustice if we think that just happens out there. We have rose-coloured glasses on if we think that's the case. It can happen in the church. It could happen inside Ross Trevor Baptist. Paul is accredited to writing a lot of the New Testament and in many, if not all, of his letters, we see Paul addressing, encouraging, challenging the conduct of the people in the church because Paul can see if that is left to run its course, what the implications could be. Discord, disagreements, division. And so let's, I'm not one to beat around the bush, let's not beat around the bush here. Working towards harmony, if that was hard then, it's got to be hard now, doesn't it? And just as Jesus' words to Paul, through Paul to the Romans, commanded their attention then, so Jesus commands our attention now when we open up his word and we read through his scripture. And it's because of this reality, this really generational reality of divisive living, that Paul says to the Romans, do not repay evil for evil. Do not repay evil for evil. Do what is right. Do not take up revenge. That's a hard one. Do not take up revenge. I know a lot of people in my life who have hurt me badly, who have caused me pain and trauma, and I would love to take up revenge. But can I tell you, there is more freedom in forgiveness than there is in revenge. There is more freedom in forgiveness than there is in revenge. Paul says, leave room for God's wrath. Let God be God. Don't you be God and seek out wrathful revenge for your sake. Allow God to do it on your behalf. Feed and give water to your enemy, to the people that have hurt you. Feed and give water so that in doing all of this so that, as far as it depends on you. Now, let me just stress here, you is both collective and individual. Paul is writing this to a community of believers. So when he says, as far as it depends on you, he means you, and he means you, and you, and you, and you. So as far as it depends on you, and as far as it depends on you, live at peace with one another, so that we may not be overcome by evil. Instead, we can overcome evil with good. Amen? It's our duty and our great privilege, really, as brothers and sisters in Christ, to work together collectively, to work personally, to practice personally what it means to live in shalom, to live at peace with others in our relationships. And so the picture of peace, really, that Paul is painting is one of personal responsibility but group accountability. Personal responsibility but group accountability. 
because it is a collective you and a personal you. Really, this scripture is quite obvious, isn't it? There's not too much that I need to exegete. There's not too much metaphors that need to be explained. So in some ways, someone could say, that's it, you can leave it there. But we know that peace is a practice, isn't it? Peace is a practice. So how can we practically translate a personal responsibility to live at peace and a group accountability to live at peace? What does that look like? Because throughout church history, as I've already alluded to, peace and unity, and I use these because it's not Jesus' definition of peace and unity, have been held up as means of propaganda to cultivate really unhealthy and at times very hurtful church cultures. So let's get quite practical here. And I want to provide us with some ways to think about how we can live at peace with one another. And by and large, these dot points and these ideas have to do with a collective living at peace with one another, but it can also be applied in our personal approach to living at peace with one another. And so the first thing I want to say is that living at peace with one another does mean right-sizing God's ways of peace and downsizing our ways of peace. Because we are not God. His ways are not our ways sometimes. Our thoughts are not his thoughts. He is far and above. His ways are far and above our ways. And what Paul is saying here, do not repay evil for evil. Live at peace with everyone. Do not take up revenge. Do not seek wrath. Allows room for God to make, be made to look glorious in our relationships. It right-sizes us and it right-sizes God when we allow ourselves to take a very humble approach in our relationship to one another. By doing this, we make God look more glorious. When we allow God the space to be God, when we allow God the space to be God, we right-size him and we right-size us as well. The second thing I want to say Living in relationship with one, another's, one another does mean adopting a practice of peace consistently. I think a lot of the time, as humans, we like to compartmentalise. We like to divide our relationships, the good ones, the bad ones. We like to act this way with someone else, this way with someone else. Live at peace with this person. They've really hurt me, so no peace with that person. And hear me right when I say not to try harder, but rather to aim our life to live peacefully, consistently across all our relationships so that when non-believers look at us, they can see that something is different. They can see that something is different. In Peter's first letter to the exiles, he is consistently saying to those who are exiled that when the Gentiles see you, they will see Jesus through the way that you conduct yourself and the way that you act. And so if we adopt the same principle into our living and into our relationships with one another, will not the same thing happen? If we live at peace consistently in all of our relationships? Now, I need to put a disclaimer out there that for some people here today, there are some relationships which fall short of God's definition of a relationship. And for some people here today, 
they may be experiences of really hurtful relationships, of power dynamics, of manipulation. What I'm saying here, that is for some relationships, living at peace with that person might look like might look like saving yourself in that situation. And it may look like taking a step back and finding help. And I want to say that at Ross Trevor Baptist, we are here for people who have a lived experience of that. We are here for people who have a lived experience of abusive relationships, of people taking advantage over them and people who have manipulated power for their own good. And it's come at your cost as well. And so while Ross Trevor Baptist doesn't stand for that treatment of human beings, we are a community that will welcome those who need help and who seek help. I just need to put that disclaimer out there to do right by those who have been hurt in the past. And so in that similar vein, living at peace with one another does not mean allowing hurtful and unjust and even corrupt behaviours going unchallenged for the sake of keeping the peace. It also does not mean foregoing any means of accountability for leaders, for teachers and for members of the church. These two things Jesus is very vocal about throughout the gospel and very vocal in his rebuke to people who are guilty parties because hypocrisy and abuse of power will never lead to peaceful relationships. And it's in fact the opposite of what we know that Jesus teaches. And so I wonder if we might read together this, I mean, it's a bit of a stinger of a rebuke that Jesus gives, but it's a very clear warning to what it means when we allow these behaviours to go unchallenged and when we allow these behaviours to go unnoticed for the sake of keeping the peace. From Luke chapter 11, and I will be reading this from the Passion Translation because I think it is a little bit more storytelling in the way Jesus speaks. From verse 37, after Jesus finished saying these things, a Pharisee asked for him to come to his home for a meal. When everyone was seated at the table, the religious leader noticed that Jesus hadn't performed the cleansing ritual before eating, and so he was shocked. The Lord said, you Pharisees are like those who will only wipe the outside of a cup or a bowl, leaving the inside filthy. You are foolish to ignore the greed and the wickedness within you. Shouldn't the one who cleans the outside of the bowl also clean the inside of the bowl? If your hearts are full of greed, show compassion and true generosity to the poor, and you will have more than clean hands. You will have clean hearts and be clean within You Pharisees are hypocrites. You're so obsessed with the peripheral issues, like paying meticulous tithes of the smallest herbs that grow in your garden. And of course, these matters of tithing should matter. But when you unjustly cheat others, you ignore the most important duty of all, to walk in the love of God. Readjust your values and place first things first. You Pharisees are hypocrites. You love to be honoured before others with titles of respect, seeking public recognition and and aspiring to seem more important than you are. You Pharisees, what hypocrites. Your true character is hidden like an unmarked grave that hides the corruption inside, defiling all that you come in contact with. 
And just then, a specialist in interpreting religious law blurted out, Teacher, you don't realize that your words insult us. And Jesus responded, You are also hypocrites, you experts of the law. You crush people beneath the burden of obeying impossible religious regulations. Yet you would never think of doing that. Doing that yourselves. And then jumping down to verse 52. You're nothing but hypocrites, you experts of religion. You take away from others the key that opens the door to the house of knowledge. And not only do you lock that door and refuse to enter, but you also do your best from keeping others from the truth. Now that's a stinger, isn't it? But it's the reality of what happens when divisiveness takes hold. When there, are no, when there is no shalom in your relationships with one another. And so I wonder today, maybe part of Jesus' rebuke it hit me when I read it, because I know there are some times where I fall short in my relationships with one another. And I wonder today if you could ask yourself, where have I fallen short? Where have I missed the mark when it comes to loving those around me? And the last thing that I want to say is that living at peace with others does not mean uniformity and expecting everyone to look the same, to feel the same, and to think the same. Let me say this quite clearly, that unity will always be more powerful in its diversity than its conformity and placing people in boxes and making people work out of the box. Jesus is quite clear when he says in Luke 13 that people will come from the east and from the west and from the north and the south and will take their places at the feast in heaven. Shalom is more glorious when it includes brothers and sisters from all nations, from all tribes and from all tongues. Do you know how blessed we are at this community at Ross Trevor Baptist to have such a diverse ethnicity within our congregation? It is a blessing to be in a place that is so diverse. I count it a blessing that I get to sing songs with my brothers and sisters from the African nations and I get to hear them sing to the same Jesus that I'm singing to. I count it a blessing when I hear the stories of persecution and in just incredible endurance that my brothers and sisters from some of the Asian countries tell me. I count it a blessing that I have grown up with incredible Greek and Italian families that have taught me how to cook, taught me how to eat, taught me how to love, who have taught me what family looks like when my own family didn't look like a family. I have such incredible stories to tell of the value that has come from listening to people that don't look like me and don't have the same skin colour that I do, who don't have the same background that I do. Their social background, their cultural background is so important to the health of our community because heaven doesn't look like just white people who look like me. Heaven is so much more diverse than that. And we get a glimpse of heaven 
when our community and when our congregation accepts the diversity of the children of God. And not only that, taking into account the importance of a lived person's experience, wrestle with God, challenges, joys, it's important to the functioning of the body of Christ. We are all different parts that form one body. Different parts that form one body. I don't know how many personality tests there are out there to tell you what kind of personality that you have. But I know that there's enough to say that no one has the same personality. No one thinks the same way. No one feels the same way in, in response to certain situations. We certainly all don't look the same. Diversity is necessary in our relationships with one another. And so as we close today, the purpose of this series, as I've already said, has been to communicate the twin realities that Jesus is the bringer of peace and that for some people in some situations, we don't feel peace. And we've looked at the many different facets and, and areas and, and ways to understand the peace of Jesus. But can I leave you with this? That it's through the power of the Holy Spirit that the seeds of peace in our life can flourish. I was once told by someone who was actually here today that I wasn't expecting Maddie Lucas to be here. She said to me one day that... Patience is a fruit of the Spirit, and you need to give it time to grow. Not only is patience a fruit of the Spirit, peace is a fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control are fruits of the Spirit, and it needs time to grow. The seeds of peace need to be tended to. It needs to be protected. You need to allow space and time and energy to look after it so that they can flourish and you can bless those that are around you by living in shalom and living in peace with one another. And by doing that, we fulfill and we become part of fulfilling one of the last prayers that Jesus prayed before he died for us. We see Jesus on his hands and knees praying to God for his disciples. But we also see him praying to God for the believers that would come. Who are us? Are we not? We are the believers that were to come. And Jesus says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, through the disciples' message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am with you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. This is what Jesus prayed for us. This is why division is so real in the world, because it challenges what Jesus says of us. It challenges the challenge that Jesus gave us to live at peace. And so division, it's kind of inevitable, isn't it? 
in this world because we're broken. This world is fundamentally broken and it needs Jesus. It needs people who understand peace, who understand shalom and live it out to those around them and in relationships with those around them because if anything, human beings were created for relationships. Relationship with God, relationship with Jesus, relationship with those around us. And so just as the piano is playing, I wanted to allow us some space and some time to reflect. Are you living in shalom with those around you? Are there people that you need to forgive? There is more freedom in forgiveness than there is in revenge. Have you held so tightly to the, I suppose, world's promise of revenge that you've cut God out of the equation and you haven't left him the space to be God in that area and in those ways? Have you hurt someone? Have your actions hurt someone? Do you need to extend an apology. Sometimes it's easier to think that we've been wronged rather than us wronging someone else. But there is grace in that. And it's only Jesus. It's only Jesus that can work even the most chaotic and awful reality into beauty and into restoration. Your reality doesn't afraid, doesn't scare the living God. The, the ways that you may have fallen short, number one, are not a surprise, and number two, Jesus died so that you may know forgiveness. So would you stand with me today? Jesus, you are the world's greatest blessing. There's no amount of words that we can offer to you that would truly amount to the glory that you deserve, to the honour that you deserve. But God, would you see us in our humble offering, our humble offering to you, Lord, and would it please you? I thank you, Jesus, that your gift of peace cannot be taken away, cannot be defined in the world's understanding of peace, but it is far and above. Your peace to us is far and above. I ask, Lord, that we would know Christ himself Christ himself as our peace. As the one who we can trust to care for us, that we can be confident in your care for us. God, may we be absolutely still before you today. Absolutely still and know that you are God. 
And I thank you, Jesus, that even in our most trying relationships, you are still good. Lord, would you equip us with the tools that are necessary to practice peace in our life? To practice peace, to live out peace, to bless others with your peace, Lord. And I lift today to you those relationships that are broken in this room, that are absent of your shalom. And I ask, Lord, that in ways that only you can create, that we would see restoration, that we would see your goodness come to pass in ways that defy our understanding because your peace defies our understanding. Lord, for the places and the spaces where we may have caused hurt or insult, would we know your forgiveness? And would you give us the boldness to approach those who we've hurt and ask for forgiveness as well? I thank you, Lord, that your mercies are new every morning. And I ask, Lord, that the seeds of peace in our life would begin to take root that we would carefully and mindfully attend them so that at some point, in some ways, we would see the fruit of your work in us for the sake of your kingdom. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. May we know your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening and we hope that you enjoyed this podcast. If this message has impacted you in some way, we would love to hear from you. You can contact us through The Hub online at thehub.rbc.org.au or through our social media links in the show notes. See you next time.